follow me, please. When Frederick Frankenstein inherits the estate of his grandfather Victor in the 1974 Mel Brooks classic, Young Frankenstein, it's not the infamous laboratory or equipment that interests him the most. This is your home. It was your grandfather Victor's home. It's the library. The books. Well, seem to be quite a few books. This was Victor's, the Barrett's medical library. And where is my grandfather's private library? I don't know what you mean, sir. Well, these books are all very general. Any doctor might have them in his study. This is the only library I know of, Dr. Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Well, we'll see. After initially being deflected by Cloris Leachman as Frau Blucher, the housekeeper of the estate, and, in this retelling, Victor Frankenstein's former lover, Frankenstein, played by Iowa's own Gene Wilder, eventually discovers a secret passageway that leads to what he desires. What is this place? Music room? But there's nothing here but books and papers. Books and papers? It is! This is my grandfather's private library. I feel it. Look! Look at this! Laid out on his grandfather's desk is a large volume with the comedic, Mel Brooksian title, How I Did It, by Victor Frankenstein. The it, of course, being how he created his infamous monster. Frankenstein proceeds to read it from cover to cover. This is what he's been looking for all along. The precise knowledge of his grandfather's notorious work. The instructional guide for making a monster. The very thing he's been insisting he doesn't care about has distanced himself from with the revised pronunciation of his name. Frankenstein. As it turns out, he did care a little bit after all. It can't work! Although the film Young Frankenstein purposely, even gleefully, reinscribes a lot of early Hollywood's inaccuracies in depicting Mary Shelley's work, things that were never actually in the novel, like the hunchbacked assistant, the gothic castle, the bolt of lightning causing the monster to come to life, Frankenstein's interest in his grandfather's books is actually a pretty insightful moment that harkens back to the 1818 text. Subtitled The Modern Prometheus, the original novel Frankenstein deals, like so many stories in Western civilization, with forbidden knowledge. It's a reference to the titan Prometheus who, in ancient Greek mythology, disobeyed the wishes of Zeus and stole fire from Mount Olympus to give to the humans. This fire is often interpreted as a metaphor for the divine spark of knowledge that, once lit, can continue being kindled to become ever more large and powerful. And in the hands of the humans, it's not only life-giving, but also potentially destructive, in the literal sense that it, like, burns things, and also in the metaphorical sense that it challenges the omnipotence of the gods. The more the humans know, the less power the Olympians have over them. And this is why Zeus decreed that Prometheus would be chained to a rock and tortured forever, 
his liver being eaten out of him by eagles every day, only to regenerate overnight for the next round. Subtitling her novel The Modern Prometheus, cast Shelley's protagonist, Victor Frankenstein, as a similar figure who filches knowledge from the divine realm. Only he does so at the University of Ingolstadt in the late 18th century. There, after years of intense study in his rented student lodgings, he discovers the secret to creating human life. But here's where the insightful moment by Mel Brooks comes in. Frankenstein's years of intense study focused, among other things, on three ancient philosophers that people in positions of authority didn't want him reading. Old, forbidden books. The stuff of private libraries. And those who didn't want this modern Prometheus reading these things, the Zeuses of Mary Shelley's story, were Victor's own father, Alphonse Frankenstein, and one of his professors at the university, a crass old natural philosopher named Monsieur Krimp. And the ancient philosophers they didn't want Victor reading? Paracelsus. An arrogant and foolish Swiss. Albertus, Albertus Magnus. Magnus. His nonsense was exploded 500 years ago. Cornelius, Cornelius Agrippa. Agrippa. A sorcerer. An occultist. What is your name? Victor Frankenstein, sir. Of Geneva. This imagined first exchange between Victor and Kremp is from the 1994 film Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And it isn't far off from what Victor really says about his discouraging educational history in the novel, the occasion for which is often forgotten by modern readers. Shelley's story begins with a framed narrative, in which an ambitious naval explorer named Robert Walton finds a haggard, near-death Victor drifting across the Arctic Sea on an iceberg. His limbs were nearly frozen, and his body dreadfully emaciated by fatigue and suffering. I never saw a man in so wretched a condition. His startling appearance, coupled with the fact that Walton's ship is trapped motionless in a sea of ice, gives Victor good reason to tell his tale. Beginning with the early years growing up in Geneva, and how one summer he made a chance discovery that would change the course of his life forever. When I was 13 years of age, we all went on a party of pleasure to the baths near Throntum. The inclemency of the weather obliged us to remain a day confined to the inn. In this house, I chanced to find a volume of the works of Cornelius Agrippa. A new light seemed to dawn upon my mind. Agrippa was a 16th century theologian, and scholars have generally assumed the book Victor found was one of the three volumes of his De Occulta Philosophia, or Of Occult Philosophy, a kind of compendium of both learned and folk ideas about magic. Victor recalls how dazzled he was by his discovery, but when he presented the book to his father, he, quote, looked carelessly at the title page, recognized Agrippa's name. Ah, Cornelius Agrippa. And said, My dear Victor, do not waste your time upon this. It is sad trash. After recounting this memory, Victor pauses to tell Walton that, on reflection, it's this moment that set into motion the series of events that would lead him to create a monster and bring about his life's ruin. And this is important because, as far as I know, no other literary scholars have given this moment the credit it's due. Frankenstein has widely, 
famously been read as a novel about hubris, overreaching ambition, and pride. People consider Victor's conquering of human mortality to be motivated by an impulse to challenge the power of God and achieve personal immortality through fame. But in my reading, it's not God that Victor's challenging. It's his teachers. Those who cast themselves as the mortal keepers of knowledge, who can dictate to Victor what is sad trash and what is not. And what he really wants isn't fame, Rather, it's to redeem the work that so captivated his imagination. To show his father and Krimp not only that they were wrong in trying to forbid him from reading those books, but also that the forbidding of any knowledge from interested students is just bad pedagogy. I cannot help remarking here the many opportunities instructors possess of directing the attention of their pupils to useful knowledge, which they utterly neglect. In other words, when they say things like, do, Do not, not waste, waste your time, your time upon, upon this. It, it is, is sad, sad trash. trash. This moment at the end with his father is the first in a series of intellectual confrontations, episodes of what Sherry Truffin would call epistemic violence, that caused Victor to rebel. As he tells Walton, had his father had a little more patience, had he taken the time to explain that, quote, modern science had disproven Agrippa's theories and therefore had, quote, much greater powers, then, Victor says, he probably would have dropped it. But, like Prometheus challenging Zeus, Victor was only made more defiant by his father's cursory glance, the careless brushing off of his intellectual curiosity and enthusiasm. He doubled down in his obsession with the occult, determined to demonstrate the worthiness of his interests, despite his father's attempts to divert them, to deem them unworthy of serious pursuit, to block his access with shame. Lot is full now. Please wait. On a dreary morning in November, about six months after passing my prospectus, I'm in my 2008 Honda Accord, a slowly drifting iceberg, stranded in a sea of cars, waiting to get into the parking lot of the EPB, the English Philosophy Building. We're all just idling here impatiently, waiting for people to exit the lot so we can enter. It's a one-in, one-out situation you'd expect from some kind of nightclub, only the spot we're waiting to enter is actually four and a half floors of poorly lit, brutalist architecture that was recently voted the ugliest building in the state of Iowa. Still, though, it's a campus hotspot because it houses two underfunded general education courses that every student is required to take. Rhetoric and the interpretation of literature, which is what I need to get in to teach. Okay, um, I am in my car. Hold on, gotta move up. Two people, actually three people, just gave up in front of me, um, turned around, and um, drove away. But I'm gonna go try to talk to some of the other people who are sitting in line. On this day, it begins to dawn on me that this whole parking lot situation feels like a metaphor for the general feeling of blocked access that's plagued me through this entire grad school experience. And since I have a kit of recording equipment from the radio essays class I'm taking, I work up the nerve to get out and interview the people in front of me. I wanna know who they are, why they need to get into the lot, 
and if they find this situation as frustrating as I do. The first car I approach is a blue Mercedes SUV. The driver seems startled, but agrees to talk to me. How long have you been waiting in this line? I think it's already 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, do you have a class in there? Oh, yeah, I have class. It's on the Linquist Center, I think. Yeah. The Linquist okay. Center. Probably the second ugliest building in the state of Iowa. It houses the education department. He tells me that he's an undergrad, a sophomore, and he waits in this line three days a week, like me. So basically, my classes start at 12.30, so, you know, I always come here at 11.40, you know, and uh, maybe always wait to the 12 turn. I think I can go in and find a park lot. 30 minutes to get in. Pretty typical. That giant work whistle, by the way, is at the nearby power plant, and it signals that it's now 12 o'clock, meaning 30 minutes is also the amount of time I have before I should be calling roll in front of my classroom. Sorry, did I scare you? Yeah, it's just a little bit. <laughs> um, I'm doing a radio story on the APB parking lot line. Would you be willing to answer a couple questions for me? Sure. Okay, so um, what's your name? Uh, Paola. Okay, hi Paola, I'm Anna. Um, so how long have you been waiting in this line today? Um, I've been waiting approximately one hour. One hour? Yeah. I find out that Paola is another undergraduate student. And unlike most, she's not actually waiting to get into a class. She's been in this line for an hour, she tells me, because she needs to pick up a computer from her friend. So the person like can't leave the building and obviously I can't like park my car and go in. So I'll just wait it out, which is fine. I currently don't have anything to do, so it all works out. Unfortunately, I do have something to do. So for me, it doesn't really all work out. But I thank Paola for her time anyway and move on. I did this thing for three days, getting out of my car and interviewing the people in front of me. And each time, every single person I talked to was an undergraduate student. One of them was one of my undergraduate students. Hi, Thomas. I'm Anna. You look familiar. Were you one of my students? Yeah, first our rhetoric class. Yeah. Yeah, you were my rhetoric student. Hey, how are you doing? Good, how are as you? nice as it is to see them, it doesn't feel quite right to be competing for resources with my own students. But what also doesn't feel right is that while I was conducting all these interviews with the undergrads in front of me, there was something else happening too. Right beside us, there was this other line that we were all restricted from entering. Or really, it's kind of a non-line because there's never anyone in it. It's reserved for faculty members, and periodically, as we were talking, they would zoom past us and enter the lot with their prepaid passes. No 30-minute wait. Not even a one-minute wait. They'd just pull up, swipe a card, and go right in. And if that's not frustrating enough, once they got through the gate, there'd also be these large swaths of empty parking spaces on reserve for them, just lying in wait to receive their Subarus and Volkswagens, taunting all of us in the plebeian line. Every time a faculty member would zoom past, I'd ask the undergrad I was interviewing how they felt about it, including this junior named Shayna. At first she said that no one should get special privileges, but then she made one important caveat. Um, no, no. I don't, I don't think so. Besides teachers, because I know they're, that's important for them to be there on time, but they already have, so they can go, like, they can go ahead and go in, so. Well, actually, I'm a teacher. Teachers already have a line, she was saying, the one people were zooming past us in. And when I revealed to her that I'm a teacher, she seemed kind of shocked at first, but then she asked something pretty telling. 
Are you like, do you lead discussion or are you like a teacher of like the? The question is whether I'm a real teacher or merely a discussion leader. A graduate teaching assistant who does things like take attendance, grade papers, and lead breakout discussion groups once a week for large lecture classes. Still a person, for the record, who does very important things and deserves reliable access to their workplace. And I did serve as a discussion leader for Intro to the English Major when I first came here back in 2013. But for the past four years, I've been independently teaching the same intro-level courses as the faculty members in my department, even though I'm still technically called an assistant. Unwittingly, Shana's question revealed the divide she and many others seem to see between grad students and real teachers. The divide between me and the ones that can glide right past this gate. Just like the line for the EPB parking lot, only so many make it through this gauntlet of PhD work in the United States. According to the Council of Graduate Schools, only about 50% of students who start doctoral programs in the humanities will finish, at least in their first 10 years. And while that may seem like a long time, according to a 2016 report by the Modern Language Association, the average number of years it takes to complete a PhD in the humanities is 9.2. To get an MD, that is to be a medical doctor entrusted with other people's lives, takes just eight years of grad school. Of course, that doesn't include all of the residencies that follow, but still, postdocs are a common path for humanities PhDs as well. Meaning that in the United States, the time it takes to be able to teach Shakespeare to college kids is not all that different from the time it takes to be able to perform surgery on them. Why? What could possibly be so important about teaching college lit courses that it takes this long for someone to prove they're worthy of doing it? Who or what are the lift masters in that process? And what is the freaking holdup? For those of us trapped in the pursuit of our English PhDs, lift masters come in many forms. And a lot of them are psychological. Lot is full now. Please wait. Now back in the car, I'm stuck idling indignantly behind this lift master again. The master of lifting or not lifting the gate. And from here, I can't help but see its unwavering arm, as reminiscent of another kind of barrier I'm stuck behind as well. My own feeling of intellectual subordination at this stage in my career. It's as if the 12-foot reflective steel arm morphs before my eyes into the Alphonses and Crimps of my own education story. The ones who, in their well-intentioned and less blunt way, have nevertheless told me my ideas are sad trash and not worth pursuing. Because every step so far, my comps exam, the prospectus meeting, it all feels like trying to prove that my ideas, my interests and powers of perception, are enough to grant me access to some kind of PhD promised land, my own personal spot in academia. Each time, it feels like I'm being asked to produce some sort of pass that adheres to a set of English discipline rules I don't completely understand. And I've managed to keep producing one up until this point that somehow, bafflingly, turned out to be valid. But every time, it seems to be just barely so. And it's just bareliness makes my ability to produce it the next time even less sure-footed, because I've lost faith in its validity. 
in my validity. I feel ashamed that such important people seem to find my perspective so flawed. But at the same time, like with Victor, there's this hard-headed persistence too. Through all of this, it feels like the only thing keeping me from being one of those 50% that turn around and give up, maybe driving to the nearest marketing firm or Starbucks drive through to submit a resume, is my own sheer stubbornness. This conviction that I do deserve a spot in that lot. I'm more than just some undergrad who needs to pick up a computer from her friend. And in this process of getting my PhD, the more I feel like I'm being treated that way, like some frivolous underling on a mundane mission, easily brushed off and invalidated, the more hard-headed I become. When Victor arrives at the University of Ingolstadt in some undisclosed year of the late 18th century, he's immediately met with more disregard of his interests, another unyielding gate standing between him and what he wants to study. Soon after arrival, he meets with Monsieur Crimp, and although it occurs a bit differently in the novel than in the film version you heard earlier, the outcome is pretty much the same. He received me with politeness and asked me several questions concerning my progress in the different branches of science appertaining to natural philosophy. I mentioned, it is true, with fear and trembling, the only authors I had ever read upon those subjects. The professor stared. Sure enough, in response to Victor's meek proposal of his academic interests, Crimp assumes the familiar position of indifferent authority, scoffing, Have you really spent your time in reading such nonsense? Every minute, every instant that you have wasted on those books is utterly and entirely lost. You have burdened your memory with exploded systems and useless names. Good God, in what desert land have you lived, where no one was kind enough to inform you that these fancies which you have so greedily imbibed are a thousand years old and as musty as they are ancient? I little expected in this enlightened and scientific age to find a disciple of Albertus Magnus and Paracelsus. My dear sir, you must begin your studies entirely anew. Although Victor claims he was, quote, not disappointed because he had long considered those authors useless, thanks to his father, he still harbors an admiration for them and feels contempt for modern scientists. Because why is it, exactly, that Monsieur Kremp and Alphonse Frankenstein are so quick to disregard Victor's interests? A lot of critics take the answer for granted, but really, why exactly are Agrippa, Paracelsus, and Albertus Magnus sad trash and nonsense? This matters a lot in my reading of the novel, which I see as a sort of tale of two Victors, one pre-creature and one post. Pre-creature Victor is the one with the interest in the occult, a curious student whose imagination has been kindled and who thinks he's found something valuable that his teachers have overlooked. Despite their discouragement, he secretly pursues those interests in an effort to prove them wrong, which turns out to work. Combining occult knowledge with modern science, Victor discovers the method to reanimate dead matter, which is an astounding accomplishment in the realm of human knowledge. Victor was right about the potential of those forbidden books all along. The only thing that makes the creature into a monster was Victor's abandonment of it, which I read as a moment in which he becomes a turncoat, a traitor to his own convictions, a sellout 
who gives in to his intellectual detractors. So again, I ask, what exactly were those detractors saying? What message about science and knowledge did Victor internalize from his father and Krimp that led to the making of a monster? What epistemic gate had been constructed in modern science that Victor worked all those years to furtively tear down, only to end up abandoning it and siding with the liftmasters after all? To answer this question for myself, I reached out to Paul Minot, a history professor at Middlebury College and author of Solomon's Secret Arts, a book about attitudes toward the occult during the Age of Enlightenment. Professor Minot was overseas in Oxford at the time, so our Skype connection here is a little less than optimal. But I asked him why someone like Victor's father, a magistrate for the government of Geneva in the late 18th century, would have called Agrippa sad trash. Well, it wasn't taken very seriously by that time. I mean, it was it was regarded as a product of superstition and as something that had more to do with um, the period of, in which it was written. Then it, it had had more to say to pre-Reformation society. Even though Agrippa was a Protestant, probably we're not certain of that. Um, and the reputation of Geneva was for a sort of Calvinist rationalism. Uh, so it's it's not at all surprising that that would be the case. The image of Geneva is of a very straight-laced, rationalistic society. And so I think this is meant to bolster that image in the mind of the reader. I see. He's referring, of course, to John Calvin, the puritanical theologian best known for his theory of predestination. 200 years before, Calvin had promoted the Protestant Reformation from Geneva, and his brand of rationalism, or the belief that reason always trumps emotion, is reflected in his theory that all human wisdom consists of two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of oneself. Knowledge of God, and here's the rational part, can only be attained through the reading of scripture and the exercise of one's reason in interpreting that scripture. Unlike this text and reason-centric theory of knowledge, occultists like Agrippa believes that the knowledge of God could be attained through secrets embedded in nature itself. Minot talked about this when I asked him about Albertus Magnus, who's not actually in the book Solomon's Secret Arts because, as it turns out, he was never really an occultist. And, um... Those who think that, you know, this nature holds occult secrets, written revelations, um, come to believe that Albertus was somehow privy to them in the same way King Solomon was privy to them. I mean, this is the, this is the myth of Solomon on which the title of the book is based. Um, the, the idea that Solomon had this knowledge of all things in the world and um, because he had that knowledge, he knew also the hidden things in the world. And the hidden things in the world were secrets that were put there by God that would, could raise you to a higher spiritual plane. So, being thinkers of the occult tradition, Agrippa and Paracelsus believed that nature held secret, divine knowledge that, if humans could find it, would bring them closer to God. Or, according to their pious critics, could usurp the divine knowledge of God that humans were never meant to wield. But for a Calvinist rationalist like Alphonse Frankenstein, the belief that knowledge could be attained this way would have looked like superstition. 
naive, magical thinking that he didn't want his son falling for. This debate surrounding the way we know things is also what Kremp seems to take up when he calls the work of Agrippa and the like nonsense and exploded systems. But of course, Victor didn't rely on mere superstition or magical thinking to gain his knowledge. He combined the old with the new. In my reading, it was never that he wanted to prove that the old way was the right one, just that the rationalist distinction his father and Krimp were making was too simplistic and close-minded. Sure, Victor came to Ingolstadt devoted to his medieval occult philosophers, but he did delve into the modern sciences with, quote, an ardor that was the astonishment of his fellow students and a proficiency that awed his teachers, including Kremp. Within two years, Victor tells Walton, he had maxed out his teacher's abilities. By their own admission, he had nothing left to learn from them, and so he was considering leaving Ingolstadt and going home. What made him decide to stay was the decision to set off on a kind of independent study to answer this question that had continued to nip at his mind, a vestige of his still lingering admiration of occult philosophy. One of the phenomena which had peculiarly attracted my attention was the structure of the human frame, and indeed, any animal endued with life. Whence, I often ask myself, did the principle of life proceed? In other words, what makes things alive? It was a bold question, and one which has ever been considered as a mystery. Yet with how many things are we upon the brink of becoming acquainted if cowardice or carelessness did not restrain our inquiries? He decides to be brave and break through that careless restraint. Combining his advanced skills in the modern sciences, things like anatomy, chemistry, physics, biology, with the occult belief that such a question can be answered, Victor goes on to fulfill his quest. He proves that modern and occult science aren't mutually exclusive, as his father and Krimp would have him believe. It's alive. He guns it through that intellectual gate and earns himself a permanent spot in any academic lot he desires. And then he gives it all up. But that's next time in my Gothic dissertation. Back to my own dreary morning, or now afternoon, in November. It's 12.21, I'm second in line, and someone's leaving. Oh no, there's a faculty member creeping up in the other, in the other, um, lane. Thomas hasn't pressed the, but okay, Thomas is pressing the button, but I think that when these faculty members go in, I won't be able to go in. Let's see what happens. Okay, Thomas is going. Here I go. Two faculty members both press the button before me. Please press the button and take the parking ticket. Sweet. Please take the parking ticket. Please enter following the garden. Up goes the liftmaster, and in I drive to find a place to park after 36 minutes spent in the car behind my own former student. I now have nine more before the beginning of my class, which translates to just enough time to find a spot, gather my motley assortment of bags, get inside, drop the motley assortment of bags in my basement office, and dash up to my second floor classroom. There will be 50 minutes of discussing Wuthering Heights, then an hour back in the basement coaching students on their essays or, alternately, fielding grade complaints about their essays, 
Then another 50 minutes of discussing Wuthering Heights with another set of students. Finally, I'll gather my belongings and head home to keep working on my dissertation. And after two more days, I'll be back to do it all again. Because I'm chained to this rock for as long as it takes me to finish writing this thing. It's kind of the inverse of Prometheus's liver, actually. After what feels like an eternity behind the gate, my past keeps materializing just in time, only to disappear for me to remake all over again the next round. Like this chapter, now complete, but dissipating into the stark realization that, after all of this, I have to write another one. My Gothic Dissertation was written, reported, and produced by me, Anna Williams. To hear episodes, read transcripts, and see footnotes, head over to MyGothicDissertation.com. You can subscribe to My Gothic Dissertation wherever you get your podcasts, including Lyceum, an exciting new platform that brings together the most inspiring ideas, discussions, and people in the world's first audio learning community. Lyceum offers a unique online forum So if you'd like to engage directly with me about what you've heard, download the Lyceum app, search for My Gothic Dissertation, and leave me a comment in the discussion room. The theme song for My Gothic Dissertation is Can't Stop Running, written and performed by Adam Ben Ezra. A big thanks to him for allowing me to use it. The website and logo for My Gothic Dissertation were designed by Brett Forsyth of Yellowhammer Creative. Consultants were Ginger Marshall, Michael Garofalo, and of course my dissertation committee, who lifted the gate and allowed me to do this project in the first place. Thanks to everyone who let me interview them. They are Sherry Treffin, Kevin Birmingham, Deirdre Egan, Virginia Crisco, Meredith Elsey, Isabel Scockney, Ellen Ledoux, Elizabeth Allen, Judith Pascoe, Susan Mingi, David Gublar, Paul Minot, Timothy Burke, Joe Livingston, Kristen Nepp, Janelle Schwartz, Matt Barton, Renee Ledoux, Amy Paulus, Kathy Magarel, Annie Sand, Jenny Benoit, and my peers Laura, Lydia, Angela, Lulu, Caitlin, Jamie, Kathleen, Pedro, Philip, Maheen, Jen, Jillian, Anne-Marie, Margaret, Tori, Maddie, Ian, Brady, Rachel, and Carl. Finally, I'd like to give a shout out to the Iowa Public Radio talk show team, who were my engaged radio pedagogues back in 2016 and 17. They are Catherine Perkins, Charity Nebbe, Ben Kiefer, Lindsay Moon, Emily Woodbury, Claire Roth, and Dennis Reese. Thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in next week.